Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can uh, become uh, spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and to get all of that stuff out of our minds related to holidays and shopping and national indebtedness and the economy and politics and all those things that muddle everything up and get our focus on so we can get our focus on that which has real value. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can gather together as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that it is your word that you have determined is that which is used by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to mature us spiritually, that as we come to study and understand these truths and then apply them to our lives, that God the Holy Spirit uses that to produce a spiritual growth and spiritual maturity within us. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, we pray that as we look at these patterns and examples from the Old Testament, that we will see that although 3,000 years has gone by, truly very little has changed, and that the spiritual truths are just as, and the spiritual realities are just as as, uh, valid for today as they were 3,000 years ago. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16 and continuing our study of the what happens to the kingdom of Israel after the breakup into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And as we get into this particular chapter, we're looking primarily at the northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom has nothing but evil kings because they all follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. They all follow in his idolatry. And then there are some that make it even worse. And we're about to get to that point. And we should look at this section in chapter 16 as sort of a prelude to what happens at the end of chapter 16, which is the... <clears throat> Uh, rise of Ahab to power in the northern kingdom, which sets the stage for uh, the prophet Elijah to come. And truly the rest of First Kings deals with the ministry of Elijah. And so everything that we've seen up to now uh, is focused in a large way on Solomon. And then we have these three or four chapters that focus on a transition where we just get little vignettes about each one of these kings, and then we slow down again 
when we get to Elijah and Ahab. And that tells us something. That tells us that this is where the Holy Spirit puts, puts the emphasis and that we need to slow down and pay attention to these particular things. But that doesn't mean that what we see in the transition period does not have uh, as much spiritual value. There are always numerous lessons that we can and should learn uh, from this study. Now, as we've looked at this, we've seen that in the northern kingdom, there have been, a, in the, uh, excuse me, in the southern kingdom, there have been three basic kings, Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, Abijah, Abijah, or Abijam, as his name is written in Kings, Abijah, as it's written in Chronicles, rules for, it says two years, but it's actually less because it's how they uh, count the years. And I've mentioned this several times, and a couple of times confused myself because for some reason I've always thought of the nomenclature as being backwards, but you have the non-accession year way of counting numbers and the accession year in the non-accession year uh, process that is the one that is used in the north and the non-accession year counts the the year that they come to the throne that's the year of accession the year that they come to the throne or any part of it is considered their first year so that's probably just the simplest way to think of it. Non-accession year means any part of the first year is the considered year one. And in the south, they use what's called the accession year. That means they do the accession year the, when they, the king comes to the throne. Any part of that first year, whether it's one week or 51 weeks, any part of that year is considered the accession year, and it doesn't count as year one. It's it's a lot like the way Europeans count stories in a building compared to Americans. In Europe, the ground floor is not the first floor. In America, you go down to an, any office building, the ground floor is the first floor. That's what G stands for. It's the first floor. But in Europe, the first floor is the first floor above the ground floor. So if you have a 13-story building, or, or if you have a building that has 13 floors in Europe, it actually will have 14 because the ground floor is not counted if it goes from 1 to 14. But in America, 1 to 14 means it has 14, so it can be uh, a little confusing. And since the northern kingdom begins with the uh, non-accession system, it shifts to the accession system about halfway through and then back. And the southern kingdom changes the way it does things as well. So it gets a little confusing in understanding how they how they counted up these uh, particular dates. And then when you look at the synchronism that is given in each of these vignettes, you again have a prob- uh, can have a problem because if somebody were to come to the throne in an accession year system in 2000 and let's say 2004 that's not counted as the first year even if they were there from January to December that's just the accession year then 2005 would be the first year and 2006 would be the second year that would be counted as only 2 years even if they only were on the throne from 
uh, one month into that third year, we would look at it and say, well, possibly it was no more than just a year and a couple of months. But yet in one system, that would be considered two years. In another system, that would be considered three years. So it gets you just have to pay attention to that. So if you look at the numbers and they don't seem to add up, then then that's why. So we've looked at the good king or the good king Asa. Abijam is not a good king. He follows in the compromises of Rehoboam. But Asa instituted reform. So Asa is a good king, and Asa rules for a little over 40 years. So his reign is going to be at the same time as several in the north. In the north, Jeroboam rules until approximately 910 to 909. Nadab, uh, then his son, succeeds him for a short time, less, just about a year or a little more, and then he is assassinated. At least he is in a place of war when he's assassinated. He's assassinated by Baasha, and Baasha wipes out the entire family so that there's no threat of anyone in Jeroboam's family trying to take the throne away from him. It's a security measure to get rid of all of the competition. And, and he does so, and that is in fulfillment of the prophecy that Ahijah the Shilonite, Shilonite had made that Jer- of Jeroboam's descendants that they would all die, and so if they died in the city, then their bodies would rot in the streets, and if they died in the country, then their bodies would just rot out in the country. It's a sign of disrespect that nobody cared, and nobody was concerned, nobody respected them enough to give them a proper burial. And what's interesting when we look at uh, Baasha and and how God disciplines him, that even though God gave him permission, or God had permitted him to wipe out the dynasty, the family of Jeroboam, and to annihilate all of them, to kill the entire family, when because when Baasha comes to the end of his reign, we see God working consistent with the first divine institution of individual responsibility. And even though God had allowed that and it was God's purpose to discipline the northern kingdom that way, Baasha is going to be personally disciplined for his sin of killing the family, the household of Jeroboam, as well as continuing the idolatry because this emphasizes the fact that he had genuine choice. He had genuine volition that just because God in prophecy knows what will happen doesn't determine what will happen. That's an issue in a debate that's gone on in uh, theological circles in the last 10 years, something called open theism, where you have people on what I consider to be the more liberal uh, end of an extreme Arminian end of uh, evangelicalism saying that if God actually truly knows what will happen tomorrow, then that means he must determine it. So therefore, creatures can't have real freedom if God actually truly knows what will happen in the future. So therefore, God it must be open to change in the future. So he's just a good guesser. That's the most they can get from God, and that's called open theology or open theism, and it is a terrible heresy because it minimizes who God is. He really doesn't know the future at all. He's not truly 
omniscient. But in examples like this, we see very clearly that God knows the future, but because he knows what will happen in the future, it doesn't mean he determines it or that he is morally responsible. So he holds Baasha accountable, and because of that, Baasha is going to be, uh, when he dies, his entire family, all of his descendants, will be wiped out, will be murdered, just as, uh, just as his, he had wiped out the family of Jeroboam. So we have looked at most of this down through the end of chapter 15, but I just want to pick up the last couple of verses in chapter 15 dealing with the end of the reign of Baasha. And in verse 33 we read, In the third year of Asa king of Judah. In the third year of Asa king of Judah. So that's uh, in, in Judah they use the accession year system, which meant that this could would be and actually his, what we would consider to be his fourth year, because his first year, that first uh, part of a year, uh, would not have been counted for him. So in the th- uh, third year of Asa, king of Judah, and that would, uh, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king of all, over all Israel and reigned for 24 years. So Baasha is going to have a lengthy reign. But we see the description of his reign, God's evaluation of his reign in verse 34. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, following in the way or in the path of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. Now, this is the important thing to understand because you've heard different definitions of sin and evil and human good. But we have to let the Bible define these terms. And evil, as a term in the scripture, is used in some places as a synonym for sin. But in other places, it has a more restricted meaning, and it has to do with certain kinds of sin. And most fundamentally, in the book of Kings, it refers to idolatry, because idolatry is that ultimate act of spiritual treason that can be carried out in the theocratic kingdom of Israel, in that theocracy where they have a constitution given to them by God. And even though once they get a human king, he is not the ultimate ruler. God is the ultimate ruler, and the human king simply rules as a vicegerent from God. And that is a correct use of the term vicegerent, G-E-R-E-N-T, as opposed to vice-regent. And, and so look it up sometime. It's a good word to learn. Uh, vice regent means, you know, like we have a president. The vice president is the assistant to the president who would take his place if he died. Well, man can never be a vice regent to God because that's not man's position. A vice gerent is someone who serves as a representative of a king or a leader. So you can... Uh, Teach that to your kids, and they might even see it show up on a SAT test or GRE test or whatever they give them these days. So the problem is one of evil because uh, it is fun- that fundamental flaw of shifting away from obedience to God into idolatry, and that is foundational 
to any nation. And what we're going to see when we get to the end of this this section tonight and sort of close up with some summary observations in the trends of of, um, degeneracy. How does a person or a nation decline into degeneracy? We see certain patterns. It's not a hard and fast mold, step one, step two, step three, but you see certain patterns that emerge, and the initial shift that takes place has to do with how a person or how a a group of people, a nation, view ultimate reality. How a person or group of people, a culture, a nation, a country, any group of people, how they view ultimate reality is going to, in turn, determine how they view themselves. And how we view ourselves is directly related to how we understand God because man is either in the image of God or God gets created in the image of man or other creatures. And that's what Romans 1 talks about. So we're either in, we're either worshiping God as a subordinate creature in his image as his representative or we are in rebellion against God and we are replacing God with an, an image of, a, of something in his creation. And in effect, what that does is it elevates man to a position where he becomes the uh, center focus of the universe. Man becomes the, the measure by which everything else is evaluated. So this is why the foundation of the Ten Commandments has to be the understanding who God is. In philosophy, they call that metaphysics, and that's why the study of metaphysics is so important in theism because how you perceive God is going to affect everything else that flows out uh, from God. It's going to affect creation. It's going to affect ethics. It's going to affect law, politics, society. Everything else uh, is shaped by that. And so as we go through these kings, especially in the north where there's just one, each king takes them to a new level of degeneracy, a new lower level of degeneracy, it shows you have consequent chaos that develops in these nations. So Baasha's evaluations, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of Jeroboam. The metaphor walking in the way of Jeroboam emphasizes the fact that he is completely uh, supportive, completely immersed. His thinking is completely in accord with the thinking of Jeroboam. And in his sin, which he had made Israel sin, which is the sin of idolatry. Now, the worst sin which is a particular type of idolatry, the worship of, uh, of Baal and the Asherah in the fertility religions, is yet to come. So this is only stage one in their religious degeneracy, and stage two is coming by the, by the end of the chapter. And so God is going to bring a discipline on Baasha, similar to that that he brought on Jeroboam, and this is what's introduced in the beginning of chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying. Now, the first thing I want to note is this phrase, the word of the Lord. This is a phrase that indicates a message, a content message from God. It is not just a, 
a nonverbal impression. It is not some sort of inner vibration that came to Jehu. So he wakes up one day and says, well, I kind of had a little funny feeling last night. I think maybe I'll, I'll go down and, and um, bring a message to the king. There is a specificity to it. It is a specific message, a specific verbal message that must be delivered in precision. And so that comes in, the message comes in verse 2. God speaking says, In as much as I lifted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will consume Baasha and his house. That means his sin affects his wife or wives and children and grandchildren and everyone in the household. The principle is that when we sin, our sin is not necessarily in isolation. Adam's sin didn't affect just Adam. It affected uh, Eve and affected the rest of the human race. Our sins do not simply have an impact on us, on us alone. So we can't sin in private where it just involves us. There's no such thing that has some sort of effect within the cosmic system. So uh, God says that he is going to make his house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Verse 4, anyone of Baasha, that is any of his descendants who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. This is just... Uh, picturesque language to indicate that they are just going to go through the natural uh, process of decomposition. If they die in the city, then the dogs were scavengers. The dogs they had in the ancient world were not pets. Same thing is true today when you go to cities in the Middle East like Cairo, and every few years they have, it, it just sounds horrible to our ears because, um, I don't know about you all, but I'm a terrible dog lover. I, I, you know, I still could not, when I was a kid, I could not watch Lassie all the way through. I don't think I ever watched Lassie all the way through. As soon as Lassie was in danger, I was out of there. I'm just too tender-hearted when it comes to dogs. And every now and then, they round these dogs up in Cairo because they just run wild, and they just have to round them all up and kill them. Same kind of thing happens even in... Um, even in Kiev, I remember the first, it's not as bad now as it was when I first went to Kiev. I was amazed at how many people in Kiev had dogs. Everybody lives in an apartment. Nobody, or probably less than one one-hundredth of a percent of the population has a, has a house. And you get up and you go anywhere and you'll see all these people out walking their dogs. And they have all kinds of dogs that look kind of familiar but they're not quite the same as the breeds that we see here. Some are the same. You see a lot of medium-sized dogs and large dogs, and you wonder how in the world they have these dogs in all these apartments because they're not very big. I mean, the, the apartments aren't very big. And when, you, when you're out at night walking along, and I remember coming back sometimes from uh, Jim Meyer's apartment. It's about a mile, and a mile, mile and a half walk at night down major thoroughfares, but if it's close to uh, midnight, 
and there's not a lot of traffic, and you would see packs of dogs. We're t- I'm talking 50, 60 dogs running down the major boulevards, and they would have these roundups, Jim would tell me, every now and then, where they would just have to round up all of these dogs and then put them down because people couldn't afford them, and they would just let their dogs go. And in the in the ancient world, dogs were scavengers, and they were not pets. And so if somebody died and their body was out in the street, then what would normally happen was, was that the dogs would consume them. This is what's going to happen to to uh, Jezebel when, when she dies, and it is a sign of disrespect because for, for Jews, there's, there's a tremendous emphasis on the body as having value because God designed the body. God is the architect of the human body, and therefore the human body has value. Even to this day, uh, Jews do not practice... Um, Taking care of, you know, if Gentiles die, they go to the funeral home and they go to the mortuary and they're embalmed and all that, those processes. That doesn't happen with Jews. They have to be in the ground within uh, about 24 hours. And so a Jewish funeral is the next day because they honor and respect the body. So for these bodies to be left out like this showed a sign that no one cared, no one was left to care no, no one else was concerned, and it's one of the greatest forms of disrespect. So these bodies would be left in the street for the dogs to uh, devour them and out in the fields where the birds of the heavens or the ravens would eat them, and they would not be buried. So a couple of points of observations that we see from this. First of all, God is the one who raises up and tears down leaders. He says to Baasha in verse 2, inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust. Baasha was no one. Yet God raised him up for a purpose. And that purpose had to do with continuing the spiritual decline of Israel. And that had to do with bringing discipline upon the house of Jeroboam. So often a nation gets the leaders that they deserve. Just think about that for a while. Nations get the leaders they deserve, and as God takes a nation through its stages of discipline, God will give them leaders that will make bad decisions, and those decisions will intensify the collapse of that particular culture, and that can apply to a Republican or a Democrat. It has no party affiliation. And so as we have these leaders that appoint various people to positions in the Treasury, positions in the Attorney General's office, they make various decisions related to laws, related to finance. And we're watching a meltdown of the system in just the last six months with the collapse of so many financial institutions and then uh, various large companies and corporations. And there's this desperate move to try to prop everything up because the underlying uh, economic philosophy that's been in operation for the last 50 or 60 years basically operates on a certain amount of uh, arrogant fantasy, as does much of the rest of our, of our culture. And so we uh, continue to go through these processes to try to rescue everything because the last thing that we can admit is failure and that we just can't 
um, can't handle the situation. So we as citizens can't prejudge it. We can't go to the polls and say, well, I'm going to vote for this guy or that guy or this party or that party because they're going to do the right thing. God, as we've seen in the with the last administration, we have no idea what can happen. Nobody anticipated a 9-11. Nobody anticipated another war with Iraq. And nobody anticipated uh, the, the meltdown in the financial markets. And yet, as these crises occurred, we had a president and an administration that has made various decisions, some good, not some not good, to try to resolve these crises, and then those decisions in turn have had other consequences intended and unintended, and so we can't predetermine or pre-guess, pre-judge what the future is going to be when we uh, elect certain leaders. And God is the one who raises up leaders, and he tears down the leaders, and nothing happens in human history that is outside of God's sovereign control as he is shaping history and bringing it to its ultimate conclusion. Second thing we observe is that God raises up even a rebel like Baasha, who is very likely an unbeliever, in order to bring about divine discipline upon the house of Jeroboam. But even when he does that, that doesn't uh, alleviate or remove the guilt of Baasha for the decisions that that he has made. For example, if we look at verse 3, Surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, uh, the son of, the, the of Nevat. So he's going to bring that uh, upon him because of what he has uh, what he has done, so ju- because he has uh, made the people sin, he's walked in the way of Jeroboam. So uh, Baasha never does turn to the Lord, and so he is also disciplined for his uh, murderous response to uh, to Jeroboam. The third observation we have is that ultimately the cause of political chaos and instability in the north was the spiritual condition of the people. Just because the king was of a certain spiritual orientation didn't mean that the people were, but the people followed their leader. All of this started with Solomon. If Solomon failed the prosperity test, the people failed the prosperity test. And as Solomon uh, began to uh, build these uh, idols and these temples for his foreign wives. The people just went right along with it, and they went from a devotion to God to a devotion to these idols in a series of stages over a period of years, and the result was that the spiritual collapse of the nation. But the point that we see is the ultimate cause is this spiritual shift It's not that they chose a different political theory. It's not that they shifted from capitalism to Marxism or they shifted from uh, some sort of fascism to socialism or whatever it might be. They have made their decision uh, spiritually, and that is what begins the collapse. We see that how culture views ultimate reality then shapes what happens to the culture. They move from a, a, a view of God as a personal, righteous, 
holy God that is totally distinct from creation to a God that is like all of the other gods. And Jeroboam builds, has the uh, uh, golden calf made, and he gets involved in uh, the historical revisionism. It says, this is the God that brought you out of, out of Egypt. This is the God that you should worship. And so the people in the north begin to uh, worship that idol. That's a further stage of deterioration and degeneration away from uh, what Solomon had done. But what happens, once you change your view of ultimate reality, it, it affects your view of knowledge and your view of truth. So that now truth is defined not by a creator God, but truth is being defined by man. So truth moves from an absolute state to a state of relativism. And truth can then be shaped by whoever is in political power. So you change your view of ultimate reality. It changes your view of knowledge. Once you change your view of knowledge, it's going to change your view of ethics, your view of right and wrong. And once you start changing your view of ethics, just look at what's happened in our nation in 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 relation to the meltdown of these various companies, and then there's, the, of course, this tremendous fraud that was brought about by a man who was a former uh, president of, of uh, NASDAQ, right? And he has built this, this whole uh, house of cards on uh, taking people's money, telling them he's investing it in something, giving it to pay off other people, and he's built this enormous uh, fraudulent enterprise that has just collapsed and... Uh, thousands of people have lost incredible fortunes because of his uh, lack of ethics. And ethics has been distorted today. And in business, ethics is redefined in terms of uh, social actions so that the emphasis on ethics has more to do with the role of uh, minorities in the workplace, the role of women in the workplace, other things like that, rather than operating on genuine right and wrong and how to properly uh, handle your responsibilities as a company or a corporation in terms of the, the money that your investors have put into it. And so ethics has shifted. As a result of that, you have tremendous, uh, an, a tremendous amount of unethical use of money in these companies and these corporations, which has led to to this collapse. It's, it's based on what's, what they can make out of it and what they can take from everybody else. So uh, view of God changes, view of knowledge changes, your view of ethics changes. And once relativism begins to dominate a culture, they become more and more divorced from reality. That reality is no longer what God says it is. Reality is what man, how man wants to shape his experience. And once man begins to shape his experience, then before long he begins to act as if this new, the, this new shape that he's developed is, in fact, a reality. And he begins to operate on the basis of that. And once he does that, then when stiff winds blow, it all collapses. And that's what we continue to see. I, I'm amazed when you look at... Um, the discussions that are going on related to just the auto bailout. And there's very little discussion on changing the entire culture within those corporations that produce this. 
And if you don't, and to change the culture, what do you have to do? You have to change the ethics. You have to change the ultimate value system. You have to change how they view reality and who ultimately controls things. And everything is, is interconnected and interrelated. And when relativism dominates and a culture or an individual becomes more and more divorced from reality due to arrogance, and arrogance is blinding, then eventually it's everything just collapses and everything will fall apart. And we are seeing that today in a systemic way internationally. Now, we also know there's other things that are going on in the plan of God, and who knows how close we are to the rapture of the end times or anything like that, but there could be other elements to this related to God's plan if indeed we are close to the end times. So what we see here in, in a small microcosm in Israel's history is the same thing that happens in either an individual's life or in uh, nations today. And it's the result of the blinding effect of arrogance as man seeks to shape and define the world around him apart from the God of the Bible. A fourth thing we observe is that the punishment that is announced for Baasha is the same punishment that was announced against Jeroboam. And he, none of his relations are going to survive so there can't be any competition for the throne once he is dead. And the language that is used is very similar, almost identical to the language used by Ahijah the Shilonite back in chapter 14 related to uh, the destruction of Jeroboam's uh, families. And then we have a final statement made in verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might or his power, his, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now that's not First and Second Chronicles, as I've said before. That is simply the, uh, the record of what occurred in all of these reigns that was kept uh, on file in the archives of the northern kingdom. And then in verse 6, we're told about his death. He rested with his fathers, and that means simply that he went to the same place that his uh, fathers went to, which is Sheol. And in this case, he went to uh, torments in the uh, in Sheol, and he's buried in Terza, which had become his capital. Remember, he had tried to fortify the, the southern part of his kingdom, and then when uh, Asa had entered into an alliance with, with Syria, the Syrians had attacked the north, and so he had quit trying to build up his fortifications in the south, and he headed back up to the north. Now, I've got a map here that I think shows this. Here's Jerusalem uh, right here, this little patch of blue down to the in the center, that's the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Up at the very top, we have the Sea of Galilee, and the blue line between them is the Jordan River. The land to the left is the land of Israel. To the north, we have uh, Israel. To the south, we have Judah. And right here at Jerusalem, we go to the north. Here is Ramah at the crossroads. That's what he tried to uh, uh, fortify. And he goes to Tirzah. Notice Tirzah is way up here. It's in red. If you can see this, just at the edge of the A in uh, Canaan, written there, this is the location of Tirzah, which was the capital 
uh, under Baasha, and he goes back there and he just stays there uh, until he dies here in verse 6. And then we're told in verse verse 6, then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, we already know what's going to happen uh, to Elah. Elah is not going to survive very long. Verse 7 we read, And also the word of the Lord came uh, by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani. Now, this is not the same Hanani that was the prophet that brought uh, a message to Asa. He might be, we can't be sure, but it's probably not. It was a common name. Uh, Jehu, and this Jehu must be distinguished from another Jehu who becomes king in Israel uh, some hundred years from now. So this is a prophet Jehu. It's the only time we see him. He comes uh, to uh, against Baasha and his house. The word of the Lord came against Baasha and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. See that? It's not only because of the idolatry. It's He is also punished and his dynasty is removed because he had uh, killed all of the descendants, all of the household of Jeroboam. Then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 tells us about the succession to his son Elah in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah. I lose it. I lost it for a second. The 26th year of Asa, according to the non-accession year reckoning, uh, that was uh, in the north. So this would have been the 25th year of Asa, according to accession year reckoning, in the south. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. These are two official years according to the non-accession year system used in the north. Uh, in the accession year system, it would have been just uh, one, actually one, one year, one actual year. And there is a treasonous revolt against him by one of his generals. We're told about Zimri in verse 9. This is the shortest reign of all the kings in the north, a reign of one week. Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirzah. So he goes to his his chief steward and he gets drunk and is assassinated there. At least when we were looking at Nadab, Nadab was out in the field leading the troops when he was assassinated. Here, Elah has an ignominious end as he is assassinated uh, drunk in the house of one of his servants. Verse 10 describes it. Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Now, I want you to note that this is in the 27th year of Asa, which would be the 26th year according to the accession year uh, system. Then we read, then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that what, what did he do? He killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. No one left who can be competition for the throne. Thus, we have the uh, 
application of the prophecy, verse 12, Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Eli his son, by which they had sinned, and by which they had made Israel sin. So the leaders are responsible for leading, held accountable for leading the people into idolatry, even though the people go there willingly because of their volition. Leaders have another level of accountability. And that sin is further defined at the end of verse 13 in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And then we read the conclusion regarding his death, verse 14. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So we just get this little thumbnail sketch of Elah. We're not told about anything else that happened during that time that's not relevant. What is ultimately relevant is the spiritual condition of Elah and his impact on the spiritual decline of the northern kingdom. And then we read in verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Notice it's the same time period that we have back in verse 10, same accounting. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Tirzah seven days. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belongs to the Philistines. Now, let's pull our map up here. One of the things I like about this particular map set is that, and this particular computer program, is that I can go down here to, what verse am I in? Verse 15. I can go down to any location as obscure as it might be and look it up on a map and it will instantly pop up with its location in red on the map. So Gibbethon is located in that south uh, southwestern flank of the northern kingdom just to the west of, of uh, Gezer on the way from uh, Jerusalem to Joppa not too far from the highway that runs today from Jerusalem uh, to Tel Aviv. So we have our synchronism given in verse 15. Summarizing his reign, the people were encamped there against Gibbethon. They have the military down there. The army is uh, prepared for battle. And as soon as the people hear that Zimri has assassinated uh, Elah, then Omri, who is the commander of the army, takes charge. He is the commander of the army, and he is declared king by the army. It seems to be a military coup where they make Omri the king over Israel that day. And Omri was a man who had some remarkable achievements. So he was a man uh, of, of the leaders that we know of in the northern kingdom. There's very little, if anything, mentioned in any archaeological artifacts from the ancient world. But Omri's name is mentioned. He's mentioned on uh, one stone that was found back in the 1800s called the uh, uh, Moabite stone that relates to his conquest of Moab uh, during his reign. And his name also shows up on some Assyrian lists. And this indicates that he was... 
uh, quite a significant leader in the northern kingdom. He was well organized. He built the military up and he uh, developed the northern kingdom so that they were uh, uh, they had developed these alliances with Syria to the north, also with Phoenicia. He's going to marry his son Ahab to Jezebel, who's the daughter of the king priest uh, Ithbaal, the high priest of the Baal worship in the uh, area of Tyre and Sidon. And that's going to lead to further uh, further deterioration in the spiritual condition in the northern kingdom. So in verse 16 we read, Now the people who were encamped heard it said that Zimri has conspired and has killed the king. So all Israel makes Omri the commander. And verse 17, Then Omri and all Israel went with him up from Gibeon. The reason they say up is not because they're going north, but because they're going uphill. Up and down in Israel has to do with elevation. So they're going up from Gibbethon and they besieged Tirzah. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he goes into the citadel of the king's palace, and apparently he sets it on fire, burns the house down upon himself with fire, and commits suicide. And so this is God's judgment upon him, verse 19, because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had committed, to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri, we get the conclusion, verse 7, and the treason he committed, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And that brings us down to Omri. Omri being the last of the kings uh, in this series. Before we get to Ahab, he is the first in a new dynasty. He is the fourth establishes the fourth ruling dynasty only 50 years after the northern kingdom has split from the southern kingdom. And the point that we learn from that is that spiritual instability leads to political and social instability. Because once you get away from God in any sense of true absolutes, that works itself out in every area of culture. And so their political chaos is a direct result of their spiritual chaos. Now, his um, destruction of the family of Baasha fulfilled the prophecy of Jehu, but then he, in turn, is going to be uh, judged by God. But we have further deterioration in the north, for a civil war sets in between Omri and another contender for the throne named Tibni, the son of Genoth. In verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganoth, to make him king, and half followed Omri. And this state of civil war in the north goes on for about five years as we put the chronology together. But verse 22, the people who followed Omri over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganoth. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. In verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king. Notice the difference from the 31st year here, and it was the 27th year back in 15. So that period from the 27th year to the 31st year is considered uh, Tibni and um, uh, Tibni and Omri both reigning. And the, how do they count that? 
27th year is the first year, 28th year is the second year, 29th year is the third year, 30th year is the fourth year, and the 30, uh, uh, 31st year is his fifth year. So it's probably not quite five years, could be as little as three and a half years that this goes on. But anytime there's civil war in an area this small, it's going to just wreak havoc on the economy, on the people, on all the social institutions, weaken the country. What's going to Whenever you have a weakness that is uh, in a nation like this, there's, there's, it creates a vacuum, and so... Uh, the nations around are going to strengthen their power. We're going to see the rise of the uh, Phoenicians and also the rise in power of the, of the Syrians to the northeast. Tibni dies, Omni takes the throne, and verse 23, he, in the 31st year, he becomes king, and he reigns for 12 years, so six years he reigns in Tirzah. Now, he is noted for his building. He's not quite the builder that Herod is later on, but he is quite the builder. And he buys the um, hill of Samaria from Shemer. And this was a hill sort of cone-shaped, and he cut the top off the, off the top of the hill, leveled it, and he built a palace compound on top of the hill of Shemer, that was 160 feet square with a 33-foot thick wall for defense. So he was he believed in defense. He had a strong military, and he uh, has to shore up the power of the northern kingdom after several years of weakness. At this time, Assyria also is beginning to come together further to the east and beginning to solidify it itself under Asher, uh, Ashurnasirpal, Ashurnasirpal II, who reigned from 883 to 859 and invades Phoenicia, but not Israel. He will not invade into Israel until the time of Ahab. So Omri establishes an alliance with the Phoenicians. He is going to also uh, be involved with the Syrians to some degree, but he sets the stage for the spiritual collapse that comes uh, under Ahab. So let's just wrap this up with a few observations. A few observations. First of all, we see that the nation has been promised blessing for obedience and judgment for disobedience back in Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 13, with the cycles of discipline. Blessing for obedience and judgment for for disobedience, and that's what we see working out here is the outworking of those uh, cycles of discipline from Leviticus 26, all within God's legal contract with the nation, the Mosaic Law. Second thing is that the nation has become so uh, unstable because it has gotten away from God. It's no longer walking with God. Once it changes its orientation to truth, then the nation begins to collapse from the inside. It fragments. Notice it isn't falling apart because of external enemies. It's falling apart because of the internal shift that has taken place. And this reveals to us a particular pattern that we can apply across the board uh, in looking, examining individuals as well as nations. First of all, we see that there begins with some sort of response 
to some situation in life. This is the pattern of degeneracy, a decline into degeneracy. In, in this case, it was prosperity. What happens in prosperity? People become complacent. They think they have it made. They relax their vigilance uh, spiritually, and they begin to enjoy a lot of pleasures in life that are legitimate, but because of the attraction to sin, what happens is the boundaries begin to get pushed. It doesn't seem like anything happens right away, so people begin to rationalize, and before long, they begin to compromise in smaller areas, and this leads to a greater compromise in other areas. So we see a relaxation of vigilance. Now, this is, it's important when you look at the New Testament, there are numerous exhortations related to the believer's watchfulness. And the key word in the Greek is the imperative of the verb blepo, which means to look or to watch, but many times it's translated uh, in different ways into English idiom, be careful how you walk or beware or watch out for. So if you just do a concordance search on look, you'll miss most of it. And, for example, in Ephesians 5.15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Uh, Philippians 3.2, it's used three times. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Uh, Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. So in all these verses that uh, believers are to be watchful, to be careful, to be observant, to keep a guard up spiritually and not to become uh, complacent. Once you become complacent, you can easily become bored. Then you want a little excitement, a little thrill, and that can lead you off into uh, the charismatic movement where you want more stimulation spiritually. It can lead you off into licentiousness and various uh, forms of immorality for more stimulation. Uh, in, that's in regard to affluence. But on the other side, if you're in a time of adversity, then you can react with uh, anger, resentment towards God, bitterness, these kinds of things, and that leads to a re- an overt rejection of God. Often in time of prosperity, God just, he, he, he moves from being a primary to a secondary uh, priority in life. He's no longer important. And once God becomes secondary, then a vacuum sets up, and nature abhors a vacuum, and that vacuum sucks in whatever values or idolatry or other religions are around. And when you live in a a multicultural environment, as Israel did and as we do, and you have these various things from the New Age movement to secular humanism to atheism, it's easy to just uh, pick up and attract these other ideas at, because we're not watching, we're not careful. And this will begin a dynamic where there is a covert worship of something else, and eventually... In self-deception and arrogance, the uh, camouflage is thrown off, and suddenly you discover, well, that person just seemed to be so positive and so interested in the Word, and they were always at Bible class, and they always said the right thing, and the next thing you know, what happened to their life? They've just imploded. And what has happened is that for, for years or longer, there has been this gradual erosion 
due to a complacency uh, towards the Word of God and, and truly making it a secondary pr- uh, priority. So we see that as arrogance and self-absorption intensify, what goes along with that is self-justification. And so there's a shift from a covert idolatry to an overt idolatry, and I don't necessarily mean worshiping idols of wood and stone and and uh, metal that we think, associate with the Old Testament, but uh, uh, idols of the mind were looking to the details of life to find meaning and purpose in life. And so there's this continuous degeneration where we're looking into the creation itself to find some source of, of happiness or meaning in life or purpose in life. And we'll go in two different directions. Depending on our sin nature, you can go in the direction of licentiousness or you can go in the direction of legalism. And as you pursue and move in those directions, and we saw great examples of this on, in, 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 the, in the politics in the last year, the self-righteous legalism on the liberal left has just been palpable this last year. I'm not saying the right doesn't have it as well. It does, but, but you usually don't associate a self-righteous legalism on the right. There is an intolerance to their doctrine of tolerance. And they hate, above all things, Christians who have any other form of absolutes. And so a polarization begins to take place. A polarization can take place in a person's soul. A polarization can take place in a culture. And that polarization then can fall apart into a fragmentation. So it was interesting not long ago that some... Some arrogant Russian said that the United States is probably going to break up into four or five parts in the next 50 years. Well, he's not far off the mark. That's very possible because of the fragmentation in the values of this country and the division between blue states and red states and blue counties and red counties and, and this kind of thing. There is nothing to bring the culture together as a common value system, which is what the nation once had. That's the same kind of thing that was going on in the northern kingdom. And the more that arrogance dominates, the more we live in a fantasy world. We have ideas that we can live with incredible amounts of debt and not ever have to actually pay off the debt and that we can have a a monetary system that's not based on anything other than uh, simply confidence that somehow the government's going to make it make it all good. We have fantasies about the goals of what a nation can achieve, that a nation can actually bring about world peace or prosperity, that we can control an international economy and know enough to, to evaluate all the factors and all the data in order to do that. Uh, we are arrogant enough to think that morality doesn't really matter and we can devise an entirely new morality. So once you remove God, you basically are reshaping uh, society and the result is collapse. And that is what we are going to see take place with Ahab's reign and the announcement from Elijah, which will begin next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and through the lens of Scripture to be able to evaluate both our own souls and the trends that we see in the, among the nations around us and in our own nation that we can have a, see that the real issue is always a spiritual issue 
And the real issue is always how we understand who you are and what you have done in history. We pray that you would, we would be encouraged, strengthened by the study we've had tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.